Hey folks, it's Jared. Today I'm joined by Drs. Daniela McKay and Yonde Pomeroon. We're going to hear about some of their favorite historical artifacts in their new book, Antarctica, History and 100 Objects. This episode was edited and produced by Joshua Gruber. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters, whether you're in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean. Chances are there's a Simsec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you're interested, please reach out and get involved. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the Simsec Podcast Network, the Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a plow of iron brew bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, shipmates, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. My guests today are Dr. Daniela McKayhe and Dr. Jean de Pomeroux, and we're going to be discussing their book, Antarctica, A History in 100 Objects. So, Daniela, Jean, welcome. Um, Daniela, would you start by telling the listeners a little bit about your background, please? Um, my name is Daniela McKayhe. I'm an assistant professor in history at Texas Tech University, um, and I research the history of Antarctica, particularly in the context of the British Empire. Thank you so much for joining us. And John, how about you? Can you tell us a, a little bit more about yourself for listeners? Yes, uh, my name is Jean de Pomeroux. I'm a historian currently um, and a photographer, and um, I have also been a reporter um, focusing on Antarctica and, and uh, polar science in general. Um, I am currently based at the Scott Polar Research Institute at the University of Cambridge, where I'm working on a historical project focusing on the cultural, scientific and political history of ice sheets. That is the big masses of ice that cover Greenland and Antarctica. Well, thank you both very much for joining us again. As a reminder to listeners, all opinions are our own and not reflective of any institution with which we might be otherwise associated. Uh, So, Danielle, I'll direct the first question to you. Uh, How did you first become interested in Antarctica as a career focus? For me, the interest was uh, mostly an academic one initially, uh, because in the United States, uh, we don't grow up learning about Antarctic history. So it's not like I have a childhood where I was like, you know, revering polar explorers per se. Um, I read Mr. Popper's Penguins, of course, um, but that was probably my only exposure to polar explorers uh, growing up. It was when I was in um, graduate school that I became interested in how in Antarctica, you have this place where number one, scientists are interested in, in going to extreme lengths to do research. And number two, how in Antarctica, often um, scientific research is used as a justification for occupying the country. And I thought, like, or the territory. And I thought, like, it's very interesting that this continent for science has been very unevenly examined by historians of science. So that was my interest. It's interesting that you bring that up because I th- we've done now 250 episodes of Sea Control. I've probably done six episodes talking about the Arctic. And all this time I've been waiting for someone to come along and talk about Antarctica. So I'm very happy to have the two of you here today and break this streak. Uh, John, how about you? How did you first become interested in Antarctica? I first started through, through my own um, photographic practice. And I was really interested in abstraction of Antarctic landscapes as, as a place which is really more about absence than presence of objects and, and scale. And, and I was sort of awed by this, by this sense of loss of scale and otherworldliness of Antarctica. And this rapidly led me to look at what else had been done historically in terms of, of the visual culture of Antarctica. And that's something that I, I'm still following today and still hoping to, we're working on and hoping to develop further. 
I combined various activities in order to get down there. I also was a, a science reporter on a number of scientific and artistic exhibitions down there, uh, both photographing and writing about the, the the expeditions I was accompanying. And that eventually led me into academ- academic research to try and basically push it, push this interest further and, and wider and deeper, rather, most of all. John, you also went to school in the UK, so you have more about Yeah, so th- th- I guess what's very interesting in, in, in terms of this book and my work with Daniela is that, yes, I, apart from what separates us, obviously she's a woman, I'm a man, different generations, and I, I was brought up, um, although I'm French, I was brought up in the UK, and so I was quite heavily versed in in, in all of those heroic stories, although I I did eventually transcend those and 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 start to take interest in in what was going down there today and 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 in the lapse of time between the early 20th century and today um including uh, cold war science and 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 um different aspects of antarctic history so daniela you mentioned a little bit of this in the first in your answer to the first question but why is antarctica often left out of history discussions and why do you think that's unfair so I think it's really unfortunate that Antarctica is left out of history discussions. I Something I noticed once I, I did a Google image search for world map, and oftentimes Antarctica is not even on the map. Sometimes it'll, it'll be pushed to the bottom or even be absent altogether. In history textbooks, you never hear about what's going on in Antarctica. And I thought, well, that's really strange. I think that that's really strange in general because there's some kind of, by not by historians not talking about Antarctica and not including it in our discussion, we are kind of implicitly endorsing the idea that scientists are the authorities uh, when it comes to the Antarctic and that, you know, that the Antarctica is this special place that's not touched by human history, even though all of the sort of human activity in Antarctica, obviously, is part of greater global trends in history. I, like the phrase that we start our book with is, you know, Antarctic history is human history. And it's it's not all about penguins and stuff. I know I feel and we both feel that, uh, you know, if you're talking about Antarctica and you don't discuss things like imperialism or the Cold War or gender relations and things like that, like you're not really getting a full understanding of what's going on there. Um, And it it does, by historians not talking about it, you're endorsing this view that not only just is Antarctica special, but even that like science is special, which as a historian of science, I have like a, you know, (laughs) problem with, with that kind of endorsement. John, why did you decide to write this book and how did you decide which objects to highlight and how did you come into contact with the various artifacts? Yes, well, I mean, this is a, a, a common story between me and Daniela. The Mystic, Muse, uh, Mystic Seaport Museum in Connecticut, um, this was back in um, 2019, was hoping and planning to stage a, a very big exhibition retracing the history of Antarctica over, over two centuries, so bicentennial um, exhibition to commemorate the the discovery of Antarctica in 1820. Now, Mystic Seaports, one of the largest maritime museums uh, in the world, and and the largest in in the in the United States. Let's say non-naval, purely maritime. And um, and the reason they were interested in Antarctica is because um, Nathaniel Palmer, who was one of the three first ex- uh, leaders of one of the three first expeditions to to actually sight the continent in 1820 came from Stonington, which is right next to, to Mystic. So um, they were interested in, 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 in creating this, this large exhibition. Um, there was a call for um, curators. Daniela and, and I were amongst those who applied. 
I think later on they decided to, to take two take on two curators rather than one, and I think that was a great move because, as I said earlier, it it provided us with a with a wider perspective with two very different entry points into Antarctic history, and it it would have made for a, a, a better exhibition if the exhibition had gone ahead, but of course, COVID came along and it was postponed and eventually cancelled. So Daniel and I were sort of left empty-handed, having done pretty much a year's work on um, on the project. And because the exhibition was very material-based with objects, images, we sort of thought, well, actually, one of our frustrations was that the, the exhibition planning hadn't planned on the catalogue. So I thought, well, we thought, well, maybe this is the the, the opportunity to to remedy that. And we came up with this idea of of a, of a book on a hundred objects, which is a cliche in a way. I mean, it's a recipe that's been wildly used um, since the, the first one, which was the history of the world in one hundred objects um, by a curator of the British Museum in 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 London. But um, as Hitchcock once said, it better start off with a cliche than end with one. And I think that's exactly what we've tried to do: is to break cliches of, um, about Antarctica. And again, coming at it together through our different perspectives has led to many, many discussions, but I think also about the book. And just note that we uh, have a lot of objects in our book. There are some objects in here that we had planned on including in the exhibition, but most of these objects we weren't because doing a book allowed us to include things that either for logistical reasons um, or the expense or the fragility of the objects we wouldn't have been able to include in an exhibit we're able to include in this book. So it does, uh, the book does let us do more in, in a certain way than the exhibit would have. Well, Daniela, let me come back to you then and ask, like, did you have a favorite object uh, among those that you assembled? Yeah, so um, I have a favorite object. I think it changes every time people ask, but one of my favorites is kind of maybe a dark horse candidate. Um, it's object number 35, which is a radio transmitter. There is this perspective that a lot of people have when they talk about Antarctic expeditions in um, the first half of the 20th century or the first uh, 20 years of the 20th century, I guess, um, where they say it was like going to space. And it's like, uh, well, if you studied this, you know, it's actually not like going to space because in space you have communication the whole time between, you know, famously Houston, we have a problem, right? There, uh, when these men went to Antarctica, uh, people back home would only find out if they lived or died, you know, years later. And there was no communication between them. And then in the American ex expeditions in the 1920s were the first that brought down a success and successfully used radio transmitters. And the first expedition, the one that we have the picture of, was one that was only used between the men when they, um, like it was one that was on an aircraft that uh, flew to the South Pole. So it was only used between the men. It didn't actually get used to, you know, call home. But by the third second expedition, they were doing that. And I also quite like how this Radio transmitter is such like a very techie, literally a black box. It's a black box. But then you have, we have it paired with this uh, really beautiful watercolor painting that was taken during the second expedition um, when, where they retrieved the um, loss, the, the, they retrieved this artifact and brought it back. And then, Jean, over to you. Uh, what's your favorite? Yes. Yeah, so, Daniela just mentioned uh, uh, a black box, and I'm afraid I'm going to talk about a black flag. So it all sounds a bit austere, which is actually not a good reflection of the book, which includes many colorful and, and interesting objects, intricate objects, complicated objects. Anyway, but the reason I, I, I picked this object is 
is really because it's very poignant. It's a flag that was um, taken down to Antarctica by Roald Amundsen and his men who became the first to reach the South Pole in December 1911. He... got to the South Pole, and you have to put put yourself in, 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 in the mindset and, and the location. The South Pole is situated on the deep on the Antarctic Plateau, which is a, basically a flat, empty, frozen space um, without anything that differentiates one meter from the other. It's all isotropic, which means it's, it's even in all directions, a bit like the surface of the sea. Which and which differentiates it, for example, from from a mountain where when you reach the summit, you know you're at the summit. It doesn't take measurements. It, you're situated bodily and, and and physically situated at the top of the mountain. You can read where you are, not at the South Pole. So you had to make calculations, and these calculations were made with with instruments which at the time were still you know quite approximate. And so he he made his calculations. They made that calculation. They planted a flag, left a tent. But in order to be sure that no one was to, going to query or question, um, they're reaching this, they're not reaching the South Pole or not identifying the right collect, the right location. They, they did what's called boxing the pole, which is they, they left black flags in, in four directions around what they believed was the pole and basically boxed it with these black flags. So it was contained within that box, which was delimited with these black flags. Now, then they left and a month later arrived Captain Scott, who was hoping with his men to be the first of the, to reach the South Pole, who'd had no idea whether Amundsen, his arrival, had reached it before him or not. And if you imagine them walking, uh, having walked 800 miles, traipsing across the, the icy frozen waste, you know, already st- starting to starve, frozen, unbelievable, harsh, hard conditions. And suddenly on this open plain, they see in the distance this little dot. And as they grow, as they walk towards it, they see this black flag. And for for them, this black flag was just, you know, a vision of hell. It was the end. It was just a catastrophe beyond belief. So the, 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 the emotional, the power and value of this flag is, is really quite amazing. And I, I actually like to think of it. It's also very modernistic aesthetically, this sort of white plain with this black flag. There's something very modern about it. And it kind of reminds me of, um, to end there, it kind of reminds me of the monolith in a way in, um, in, in 2001, the space odyssey where, where the, where the astronauts arrive and discover this thing. Now, of course, Scott and his men knew exactly what that black flag was and, and what it meant. Um, and as they walked further, they reached the tent, which Amundsen left behind and which marked his estimate of where the South Pole was. Um, so yeah, it's a very tragic, heavily loaded object but very simple. Now, while we're on the subject of navigation, Daniela, can you explain the significance of the magnetic dip circle and what was the magnetic crusade? So the magnetic crusade, um, one could argue that it's kind of one of the first major um, international scientific type competitions in the early 19th century. Now that the longitude problem had been solved by a John Harrison's chronometer, um, which famously Captain Cook took on him. That's another one of our objects. Captain Cook took on his first voyage to the Antarctic. The I guess, scientific community became interested in how the magnetic field was disruptive to some um, navigational equipment, uh, especially compasses, uh, how they could kind of correct that. And one way that um, it was determined um, that this was like a strategic idea that the Royal Navy was very interested in was, well, maybe let's map the entire magnetic field. And of particular importance was the two parts of the world where the magnetic field is at its foci, so um, the North and South Pole. Uh, and an expedition to the Arctic had already um, 
been done um, where the British kind of planted a flag at the Magnetic North Pole. And so plans were made to try and um, plant a flag at the Magnetic South Pole. And this, the British really saw this as a British type expedition since it was Edmund Halley in the uh, late 17th century who kind of was doing early uh, geomagnetic work. Um, but the British were unhappy perhaps to find out that the Americans and French were also very interested in being the first to reach the magnetic South Pole as well. Um, it's called sort of the magnetic crusade. The magnetic dip circle, which had also only relatively been, it had been invented a while before, but had only been relatively recently adjusted so it could take measurements at sea, measuring the um, angle uh, between the sort of dip and the horizon in order to map, you could actually map the magnetic field at sea. So in the same period, you have three different expeditions from major empires, France, Britain, and the United States, which is eager to show itself as uh, able to compete with these European empires that all go to the Antarctic to try and find the magnetic South Pole. None of them actually reach it because the magnetic South Pole is on land and it's not reached until the Nimrod expedition in, um, I guess it's probably reached in what, 1908, 1909, the Nimrod expeditions between 1907 and 1909, when the British do plant a flag there. In this magnetic crusade, uh, even the French and the American expedition encounter each other in Antarctica because they're all sort of down there at the same time. And I would argue that this is the first kind of international competition over doing science and linking science to discovery and empire in the Antarctic. And also in the case of the British in particular, and I suppose, the, I guess suppose all three, um, it begins this um, establishment of a uh, colonial empire of scientific research where the British were establishing geomagnetic research stations all over the world to kind of aid them in this mission of um, mapping the Earth's magnetic field, which they felt would bring them an advantage in sea power. John, what was the Aurora Australis? Well, the Aurora Australis actually provides a great antidote um, to the black flag and the black box, which we dedicated earlier, because it is, I would say, one of our, our most colorful and, and rich objects. It's not the first book to be published, but it's the first book to be printed in Antarctica. So. Um, the first book to, to have been put together in Antarctica was in 1901-04 um, by Captain Scott and his men during Captain Scott's first expedition, known as Discovery Expedition, in which during the winter winter time to keep the men busy and to, to give them a project to work on when they were indoors, other than the science, etc., which they kept doing during, during the winter months, Captain Scott invited his men to contribute to this book in the form of drawings, poems, um, short stories, um, funny stories, whatever they wanted. And, and it was eventually compiled and the original, um, copy, um, is currently in the Royal Geographical Society in London. And it, it facsimiles, various facsimiles have been made. So you, you can actually buy a, buy a facsimile, which has recently been, um, republished. But the original then was, was this compilation. And this started a tradition that went on for, decades and, and and still goes on today of of putting together publications in the winter month the difference with the aura australis was that it was it was the next one to be produced in in 1907 during the 1907 09 um, nimrod expedition which was led by um by um uh, shackleton and shackleton of endurance renown and shackleton decided not only to to put together a publication in the winter months, but actually to print it down there. And he, in order to do that, he, he brought down a printing press 
And this is another aspect of keeping the men busy during the winter. And, and like its predecessor, um, it, um, which was called the South Polar Times, it, it comprises, um, uh, poetry and, 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 and drawings and stories and all sorts of things, which really tell us about life in Antarctica during the Edwardian age. So it has that sort of, of certain stiffness in the sense of, of associated with, with the time, but also plenty of humor and very personal touches. So it's, it's a real beautiful, insightful, moving insight into what it meant to be, to winter down there at that time at the edge of the earth without contact with the outside world. And, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's wonderful. And actually to end, it was, um, actually bound down there as well. And it was contained within the, these covers that were made from the plywood, um, of store, storage cases. So storage cases, which had been emptied, um, they cut, cut up the wood and, um, turned that into the cover of these volumes. Well, appropriate transition, uh, as we discussed the way that people would occupy themselves on these expeditions. Jean, last question to you. What can you tell us about the history of board games in Antarctica? Well, board games were obviously a, another way of keeping uh, people, uh, men early on, it was mostly men. And of course, that's a big aspect of our book is to show through objects how women eventually were allowed and and, and got to play an important role in, in, in all things Antarctic. But um, the board, so board games were brought down from the earliest days, just simply to keep busy like anywhere else, but even more so. I mean, you can imagine their add, added value and importance within the seclusion of Antarctica and, and, uh, and the 24 hour darkness of, of winter. So this included all the classic, you know, board games such as chess and, and drafts, et cetera, and backgammon. But I guess later, you know, if you go to Antarctic stations today, um, most of them have, um, an entertainment kind of room where they have, well, they used to have CDs and videos. Things are changing, but um, but but also stacks of books and 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 all sorts of games to to play with. So every kind of game you can you can imagine. So that's one aspect of games in Antarctica. Board games have also been made on the theme of Antar of the Antarctic and Antarctic exploration. So Admiral Byrd, the American explorer who organized many expeditions down to Antarctica, famously made a a board game. Um, which, which sort of plays on, on his exploration and, and his flight over the South Pole. And it's, a, and, and it's, it, it's basically who gets there first through his board games. But it, it was a, a way of raising money, of raising his profile, of, of doing education outreach on the expedition. The idea was repeated by a, a French, um, uh, explorer called Pauline Victor, who also made his own board game, a board game, which is actually a bipolar Arctic and Antarctic board game. And, um, yeah, so there's both. And to, to end on the juicy stories, um, on, on, there's a tale of, of, um, which remains somewhat foggy and murky of, of murder having been done over, um, a board game, over a chess game in a Russian station. Um, Daniel, remind me what period that was. I think it was in, in, in oh, the, sort of the, mid, mid 20th century. Yeah. I think the 70s or something. Um, but it, it's one of those stories where nobody quite exactly knows. It's sort of anecdotal that someone murdered someone over the outcome of a chess game in a Russian station and afterwards that uh, the games were banned. Of course, you have to remember when the story emerged, although Antarctica did foster some um, scientific exchanges between Western and, and you know, these scientists, there also was this international competition, um, which we could talk about at length, but it, it very much, I think, suits the American um, and sort of Western depiction of the Soviet Union to think 
that they are murdering each other over their chess game. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that's all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Danielle McKay and Dr. Jean de Pomeroo. John, we'll start with you. Where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Um, well, I'm, I, you can find me online on the website of the Scott Polar Research Institute, which is part of the University of the University of Cambridge and uh, is a sub-department of the geography department. So that's the Scott Polar Research Institute. And there you can read about all, all the different aspects of my work. The central aspect right now, as mentioned in the beginning, is a is focusing on the history of the ex- of the exploration of of the scientific, political, and cultural history of the ice sheets that cover Greenland and Antarctica. So it's 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 a history of how we came to understand these um, vast unknown environments. Danielle, the same questions you. Where can we find you, and what's your next project? Well, of course, uh, my faculty profile at Texas Tech, but also um, at Twitter at Far South History, my Twitter handle. And I frequently post work like popular uh, writing with the conversation on different sort of topics related to Antarctic history. My current research project, I'm um, working on getting a book published on the history of British and New Zealand Antarctic programs during the International Geophysical Year which might be of interest to some of your listeners because of the a kind of major role that the um, United States Navy played in the development of the New Zealand program. Um, they're very near each other on the McMurdo Sound. And that should be coming out with Harvard University Press in about a year. Uh, and I'm d- also doing another project right now on the um, history of the discovery investigations, which is a um, major, the first kind of major maritime research project in the Southern Ocean. Well, thank you both again for coming on. To the listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.